and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. This show is for mid-October of 2023. The global carbon dioxide level is 418.9 parts per million. As you know, that's 70 or so parts per million above the 350 parts per million that scientists tell us is safe. And on top of that, we only have 2,262 days left until the year 2030 when we need to cut our carbon emissions dramatically. So it's time to get to work. Well, recently we had a very interesting conversation with the co-author of a report who talked, who examined private jet use at a place called Hanscom Field here in Massachusetts. Hanscom Field is a uh, private air, airport facility on Route 128. Used to be 128, now it's 95, uh, just outside of Boston. A lot of private jets go in and out. That author, whose name was Chuck Collins, we talked about the nature of the usage of Hanscom Field. And it turns out that Hanscom Field is primarily used by very rich people to fly private jets with significant carbon dioxide emissions associated with those flights and raises the questions of equality, all kinds of stuff. So that was a, a recent podcast with the foundational information. Today, we're fortunate to have with us an activist who's been working to prevent the expansion of this airport. Uh, and we're happy to have him with us now. His name is Alex Chatfield, and he's an early member of a group called the Coalition to Stop Private Jet Expansion at Hanscom or anywhere. And we're thrilled to have him on board. Alex, how are you doing? I'm well, Ted. Thanks for having me. Great, great, great. So I gave a little description of where we are and what you're about. Did I get it right? What's the uh, what's what's going on? You did. Uh, our coalition uh, is is trying to prevent uh, a, a huge build out of new private luxury jet hangars uh, on the north side of Hanscom Field, which is a civilian airport. Uh, as you said, just outside of Boston, and uh, already facilitates uh, 38,100 private luxury jet flights per year uh, in and out of um, what is uh, considered to be New England's uh, uh, second largest uh, aviation uh, general aviation airport uh, and um, one of the properties of Massport, uh, which is our uh, state um, port authority, um, and uh, that's that's what we're up against right now. This is uh, 27 new hangars, 500,000 square feet of hangar space, parking for 50, 60, 70 jets at a time, depending on the size of the jets, and um, 37 acres of new pavement for the jets. Uh, which would involve uh, clear-cutting and paving um, a land that is already uh, partially forested and uh, adjacent to um, a historic park uh, and also a national wildlife refuge. That's right. I mean, the, the Hanscom Field is very near Lexington and Concord, right? I, I mean, it's 
approximate to that? Not adjacent, yes, maybe, but, but close, right? Well, at the end of its driveway is the Minuteman uh, Historic Park. Okay. Uh, it's uh, you could throw a stone from their driveway to the site where Paul Revere was captured uh, on really? the night he did his ride. Wow! So, 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 what we're talking about is a build out of hangar space. Would that imply additional hangar space, which of course is storage? I don't know why they call airplane storage places hangars, but I mean that there's a, a, a basically tripling the storage for these. Uh, Logan Roy kind of uh, Learjet kinds of things, right? Would that imply more usage of the airport? Every time there's been a significant expansion of those kinds of facilities at Hanscom, uh, in subsequent years, the number of flights have increased. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's a there's a proportionality to it because. What you're doing by increasing the uh, space available in the hangars is you're making it more convenient uh, for the users themselves to uh, get their jets going. Um, and uh, so it's the same principle as when you build a new highway, you get more cars. If you build a new tunnel, you get more cars. If you build parking spaces uh, in any location, you get more traffic. Um, and that is uh, that is exactly what we expect to happen with these new hangars. If you build it, they will come. And so it's a uh, uh, so so. There's a couple of questions that arise from that. You said the word users, right? Which are an elite set of people. We can find out. So one question is where. Um, you know, who's using the place? Why is it useful to them? Uh, and the second, I think, related question is, why is the expansion of private jet use a climate issue? Right? I mean, those are kind of related. Well, I mean, those, how are, do you those, are two, those are two important questions. Mm -hmm. And um, people need to know that the private jet industry is in boom times. Uh, and um, that's actually been going on uh, since before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, um, the demand for flights uh, absolutely increased, um, partly because uh, the rest of the uh, commercial aviation industry was struggling with COVID restrictions and uh, concerns about uh, the safety of airports and, and, and those flights. Um, but partly because once people got a taste of what it was like to fly on a private jet, uh, even first class service on regular commercial planes, all of a sudden seemed a bit subpar. Uh, but the industry itself, um, it projects over the next 10 years, uh, about 10% annual growth. Uh, it's already about a, I think about a thirty billion dollar uh, industry, um, you know, in terms of uh, buying and building and selling the planes and and, and all of that. Um, and so this is really a story about demand, uh, uh, sort of uh, rampant demand for um, more jets and and more jet flights. And the industry's been pretty creative in terms of how to get people on the planes. You really don't have to go out and buy your own plane now in order to be a private jet customer. There are uh, fractional shares uh, that you can own of planes. There are charter companies. 
Um, uh, Hanscom itself already has uh, several companies that um, really just uh, sell space on on flights to, you know, the places that want to go. Uh, that, that people want to go to, whether it's Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket or Aspen or Puerto Rico, you know, you name it. Um, the, the planes are really going everywhere. Um, so uh, while there are notable examples of billionaires who own their own planes, there are mere millionaires who don't mind paying, you know, 10,000 bucks to fly wherever they want to go on their own schedule. And um I found it very convenient to spend the ten thousand dollars to save a few minutes. You know, I do that regularly when I fly off to Aspen for the yeah. uh, Aspen Festival. Yeah, th this this is about luxury and convenience, and also um, not having to deal with the unpleasant parts of traveling through airports uh, or sitting next to strangers on planes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's one part. Um, but the climate part is is uh, far more dangerous and concerning. And quite honestly, uh, as, as someone who's been a, a sort of self-described climate activist for the last 10 years, I have to admit aviation was not really on my radar. Um, I mean, I knew that planes burned a lot of fossil fuels uh, from time to time. Personally, I've tried to refrain from flying on planes and uh, certainly have enjoyed, uh, uh, you know, trains and, and other less polluting forms of, of transportation and same for my friends. Um, but the degree to which private jets are uh, sort of in a class by themselves as, as uh, carbon emitters, I was really not that aware. Uh, so, so if you just want to compare it to a couple of forms of transportation that people use quite a bit, uh, when you get on a commercial jet, the, the amount of pollution per passenger per mile depends on how long the flight is. The longer the flight, it's actually more efficient. Um, and so, uh, a long haul commercial, uh, seat on a large commercial plane is really not terribly different from driving a gas burning passenger car by yourself. Um, so, you know, while it's not great, it's, it's, uh, certainly understandable that people need to visit their families and, and there's other reasons to travel. And so if you're doing it on a large plane for a long distance, it's not really that much worse than driving a, a gas burning car. A private jet is estimated to burn 10 times as much fuel per passenger per mile. Uh, and the shorter the flight, the worse. And there are people flying out of Hanscom many, many flights for less than one hour because it only takes about 25 minutes to get to Martha's Vineyard. And many flights are going to the islands uh, off the coast of Massachusetts. They're going to the Hamptons, um, you know, so they're staying within New England, which means that a, a large portion of that flight is spent on takeoff and takeoff burns the most fuel. So uh, it was staggering for us as we began to hear about this project and then get educated on the realities of private jet flights to realize that um, Hanscom is one of the largest sources of carbon emissions in the region. Logan is obviously very high as well. 
But we've estimated that the private jets alone at Hanscom with the 38,000 flights and burning 330 gallons of fuel per minute and the fact that they discharge the emissions high in the atmosphere, which is more damaging in terms of climate uh, emissions, um, they are currently burning at least uh, six or 700,000 tons of CO2E per year. To put that in perspective, the average passenger car driven per year is only about five tons. So uh, we're talking about the equivalent just from those jets of 150,000 passenger cars uh, being driven uh, you know, for the average number of miles that they go each year. The other statistics that's pretty shocking is those jets alone at Hanscom are probably negating half of the carbon savings from all of the solar panels that we've ever installed in Massachusetts. Uh, half already. <laughs> that's a, that's a, which is stunning, right? Stunning, I mean, yeah. Put, I'm, I'm seeing your slide. When you put up a solar array, the reason it's it's uh, reducing carbon emissions is that you then do not have to burn uh, natural gas or coal or oil at a power plant, uh, and instead you're getting the free electricity from the from the sunlight. Well, we've put up about four gigawatts, I think, of solar worth of solar panels, about twelve million solar panels, or something like that. And uh, these jets alone um, are negating the benefit of half of those panels. And what Massport wants to do uh, is to vastly increase those jet flights uh, in, in coming years. Interesting. So your point is that we're already uh, canceling out half of the solar panels we've installed and Massport wants to expand this. Uh, just a visual. I mean, you say that it's 150,000 cars for a year, I mean, a visual on that that just comes to my mind is, you know, another Route 12895 around Boston with 150,000 cars driving back and forth for a year, right? That's what's yeah. coming out of Hanscom, right? It's yeah. it's like, that's... Uh, well, but that raises another fascinating question. In my understanding, Massport has nobly intended to... has has set a goal of being carbon neutral by 2030, which I think is Massport says all of their buildings will be powered by solar panels by 2030 or something. But the carbon dioxide that comes from these jets, where is that accounted? How does that fit into the Massachusetts uh, roadmap or does it fit in? Oh, wow. Those are such amazing questions. Um, that's right. My understanding is that when Massport talks about uh, its uh, sustainability plan or, or, or you know, emission reduction plan, um, they're really talking primarily about buildings and buses. Uh, they uh, may um, count... Um, for other purposes, some of the emissions from planes, but it's really only when they're on the airport campus. Uh, once they take off, my understanding is it's it's somebody else's problem. They're they're not uh, uh, it you know it it didn't happen on their property. Mm -hmm. So whatever emissions come spewing out of the planes after that, it's. It's they don't have to count. They don't have to count that as, as far as what they're doing. 
Um, so that's one thing. And, 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 you know, if you consider that <laughs> electrifying a bus, that's a nice virtuous thing to do, but a fully loaded bus is already a pretty decent form of transportation. It's, it's not, uh, it's not causing too much uh, trouble considering the number of people that ride on those buses all the time. So by all means, electrify them, but you're not saving the climate by doing that. I mean, it's a fascinating um, hole in the, in thinking, right? Is that, and I think you're right. It's the same, I believe it's the same deal with ocean shipping, right? Once that tanker leaves the the port of Boston, the carbon dioxide is not Massachusetts problem anymore. And that's right. But the physics says it's still in the atmosphere. And so yeah. it's so in a sense, the Hanscom the issue you're pointing out at Hanscom is a whole new ball game, right? To say that Massachusetts in some sense needs to recognize and take responsibility for the consequences of what it's allowing to have happen. Well, well, I'm really glad that we've gotten to this place in the conversation because this is one of this has definitely been one of the biggest revelations for many of us. Um, and I've come up with different different analogies, but the best way to put it is no one at any level of government is minding the store on aviation emissions. There is no plan locally or at the state level, or at the national level, to begin regulating uh, and halting the growth of and planning for the reduction of aviation emissions. In fact, the regulatory uh, framework that we have uh, and the charters of agencies like Massport and the FAA, which were set up 70 years ago, were intended entirely to grow aviation. Uh, Massport is an aviation growth company. And uh, that uh, mentality that existed in 1956 for the time made a good deal of sense. Uh, Aviation growth was seen as, uh, you know, crucial to the growth of the economy in general. They wanted Massachusetts to be connected to the rest of the world. They wanted businesses to be able to do business um, nationally and internationally. And of course, they wanted for people who wanted to fly to to be able to do that. But if you consider the uh, uh, environmental situation and environmental concerns in 1956, they'd had nothing to do with global warming or climate change. Um, at the time, there was definitely an awareness of uh, air pollution, uh, and we were working on uh, conservation of land in wilderness areas and parks and places like that. And we were beginning to realize that the chemical industry was uh, a bit of a threat. Um, but the magnitude of what climate change was going to be was unknown. Right. And um, therefore, the fact that that agency is still operating under a 70-year-old charter that never took climate into account, it's functioning as designed. What it's designed to do is to grow endlessly on and on with no limits into the future. And that's what it's trying to do. I think that is really a fascinating point because in my travels through the climate, through Massachusetts climate stuff, it seems as if there is 
a need to recognize that the state needs to be aligned at all levels with the climate, the purported roadmap that Massachusetts has. I mean, to your point, Massport, its mandate is to grow. ISO New England, its mandate is to provide reliable power at the cheapest cost, right? The and, and there's no, there's no, there's nobody cracking the. Although maybe Governor Healy has a, a climate person now, right? But it's very difficult to align all these different agencies to the same north star of climate of carbon reduction when they're all off doing what they were told to do 50 years ago. So that's a, I mean, an interesting, very interesting point that Massport. To, to be clear, aviation was not included in the state roadmap. Yes, that is most- true. Most politicians uh, have considered that aviation emissions are inevitable and untouchable. Yeah. There's no way to regulate them, especially because the FAA, which is also all about growth in addition to safety, uh, provides millions and millions of dollars in grants to airports. Uh, not only in Massachusetts, but all around the country. And if you accept those grants, uh, you have to make certain assurances to the FAA that um, you will uh, treat uh, all different forms of uh, aircraft the same as far as access to those facilities. You will not restrict or regulate what kind of fuel those planes can burn. You can't demand that some of them are electric. Uh, it is uh, it is wide open, and everything privileges the aviation industry um, uh, over and above uh, local communities. Um, they pay lip services, you know, to issues like noise um, and uh, you know other sort of nuisances that arise, but. Um, as far as uh, how many planes, what kind of planes, what kind of fuel, all of that, they're untouchable. The airports can't regulate them. And uh, for that reason, uh, constraining the growth of the facilities is one of the only ways uh, to to limit the uh, onslaught. Um, because once the facilities are there, um, anybody who can afford to pay for parking and and the fuel and everybody else, everything else that goes along with it, um, they get to do whatever they want. And Massport gets a cut of the action at every stage, whether it's a percentage of the leases, uh, uh, the um, takeoff and landing fees. Um, I mean, it's, 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 they, are, they are financially incentivized to have more and more and more and more flights. That's fascinating. I mean, that the the leverage that that climate activists have is on the what's on the ground, what's built on the ground. So tell me, what is the you are part are are an early member of a coalition that is trying to prevent this expansion? Tell me about that. What's going on? Who's what's the strategy, and what? How can people help? Uh, thanks. Well, um, since February, when the project was announced, uh, we've had a um, process underway uh, required by law uh, uh, under the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act, uh, MEPA for short. Um, So when a project of this kind reaches a certain magnitude, it triggers the requirement for an environmental review. And uh, so there was a public comment period, 
and uh, various um, agencies and and uh, uh, members of the public and uh, groups like uh, select boards and and others uh, wrote letters and made public comments, um, almost all of which were in uh, opposition to the project. And uh, Environmental Secretary Rebecca Tepper submitted an extensive um, list of uh, questions that uh, need to be answered by the developers and Massport as part of this review. And some of those questions absolutely concern emissions, not just um, the noise or the uh, ground pollution. Um, and so uh, that project has been underway now for seven or eight months. And it is ongoing and uh, the public is not really informed about uh, the date in advance when the draft environmental impact report comes out. Uh, but to be clear, uh, the MEPA process is not a permitting process. They, uh, they are there in a sense to make sure that all the dirty laundry is hung out on the line for people to see. Uh, but it's not as if there's a uh, bright red line where if the project is too terrible uh, for the environment, it is therefore canceled. That's not how it works. Um, in fact, one of the few uh, signatures that was required at all to uh, to to get the project underway was was given by Charlie Baker, our former governor, uh, just before leaving office. Uh, because Thank you when, very much. Massport, when Massport made the deal with the uh, developers to um, to get this started, uh, a couple of small strips of land um, uh, adjacent to, to what the developers own and what Massport owned, there had to be a swap. They called it a land swap. And because that was the case, uh, it required uh, Governor Baker's signature. And uh, that happened very quietly uh, before he left office. And then as soon as Governor Healy came in in January, uh, the, the project was announced. So, so Governor Healy inherited um, what was uh, already, in some respects, a done deal, um, in many respects, a done deal between the developers and, um, and Massport. So the draft environmental impact report will come out in the next few months um, and uh, everybody will read it and uh, it will be up to Secretary Tepper to decide, as I understand it, if the developers have really done their homework and provided all of the data and addressed all of the issues and concerns that were raised by her and the public. Um, and uh, as I understand it, draft reports can be sent back for revisions and further work if that is indicated. Um, they can be accepted. Uh, there will be some kind of hearing process, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it will be like a formal hearing where people need to come in and testify. We had a hearing of some kind in February, but it was just a webinar uh, that happened for a couple of hours one evening. And uh, people who were on it asked questions to MEPA. And most of the questions were answered with statements like, well, we'll see what comes out in the report. 
So, but again, they're not there to permit the project. They are there to produce a report. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, Massport is going to need to decide uh, if it is truly worth it to them to uh, continue uh, building this project. And um, that will have as much to do with uh, the disaster that it's going to be from a public relations perspective and a climate perspective. Um, and as one of our state senators has said, the, the risk is they could become a pariah agency um, by doing this, that, that the uh, sort of catastrophic consequences for climate change um, uh, will be so bad uh, that, uh, you know, they will sort of forever suffer this reputational damage because they've decided to go forward with it. So what is the the coalition that you're part of, what has it done? I mean, so what you're saying is that it is kind of a, a name and shame thing. It has to be publicized. People need to know that Massport is making a bad decision, right? And how do you go about achieving that? How do you go about raising the profile of the the issue because it is kind of arcane. I mean, and, you know, hangers and hands, hands come like, all right, you know, please move on. Let's talk about, I mean, how, how do yeah. you get the attention of people? Sure. This has been a, a very uh, conventional uh, advocacy campaign, uh, public education and advocacy uh, that's been um, uh, going on since the spring. So we have met with countless <laughs> public officials at the municipal level, um, many, many legislators. Uh, we have um, uh, visited, um, you know, civic groups and churches, and uh, we show slides and we talk about the climate impacts of the project. And um, we have uh, organized uh, letters and statements from uh, select boards, um, and we have gotten uh, 50 statewide and and local climate organizations and um, uh, churches and uh, civic groups and uh, town you know political town committees uh, to sign on to our coalition. And um, a big milestone was on October 2nd uh, when we, held a rally uh, at the state house that was attended by about 240 people. Um, it was a beautiful day. We were out in front of the state house. Uh, we had uh, wonderful uh, speakers, um, got pretty decent media coverage uh, that day and, and in the following week. Um, and then uh, most of that crowd uh, walked into the state house and we gathered uh, in front of Governor Healy's office, and we presented her with a petition uh, opposing the, the the project and asking her to use all of her authority uh, to to get it canceled. And um, that uh, petition, so far as I understand, now has been signed by over twelve thousand people, and the number of signatures continues to grow every week. Um, so, a couple, a couple things. One is, dear listener. If you've never been to the Massachusetts State House and walked up to the governor's office, it's quite a it's quite a trip. It looks like you're inside a cathedral, marble staircases, like stained glass is beautiful. You get to go up, and then there's a hallway outside the governor's office, and 
many, you know, th- that's a classic place. You're met there by a security guard and the secretary who accepts the petition, right? Because the governor is in in back. But it's a it's a beautiful spot. You should you should go and just check it out because the Massachusetts State House is pretty cool. And then you'll have a visual on, you know, we went to the governor's office because it's an impressive place. Yeah. Uh, and to be clear, uh, we were not there to protest against the governor. Uh, the, the, we, we were there, uh, uh, first of all, uh, to, to try and protect the climate, uh, to raise awareness of the problem of private jet aviation, uh, and this project in particular. Um, but we were there also to, to show, uh, support, uh, for Governor Healy and her team, uh, that she's appointed. She's gathered some wonderful people into her administration. Uh, Melissa Hoffer, who is her climate representative to the rest of state government and uh, Secretary Tepper. Um, we really believe that um, they would, uh, uh, because of their values and because of what they said during the, uh, what she said during the campaign about uh, being a governor who would protect the climate. Um, we, we, choose to believe that uh, she will do everything she can to make sure that this does not get built. Um, and so uh, we were there to uh, to support her as a climate leader and to uh, demonstrate that uh, uh, there is uh, vast uh, political uh, support uh, for uh, making sure that this um, project does not get built. So speaking of vast political support how, in, in, in growing that, where can people go to learn more about your group if they want to, you know, keep track of uh, the the comings and goings, as, as sure. Kendall said? Uh, we have we have a great website, um, and uh, it, it, the, the easiest way to get there is just to use the uh, use the initials for our campaign. Uh, so the campaign is um, uh, stop private jet expansion and so that's spje.org so you can use the whole phrase or you can just go to www.spje.org and when you get there uh you will find um a way to uh, add your signature to our petition uh, you can also explore a ton of information about private jets and about the Hanscom project itself. And uh, you can also make a donation. And um, we are accepting donations because fighting multi-million dollar state agencies and industries, uh, you need to be able to back up what you're saying with, with data. And uh, so part of the reason we're raising money is to make sure that we can provide uh, credible information uh, to, um, yeah, to ensure that uh, that the right decision is made at the end of the day. Fantastic. Well, we should put it down there. What I'll, I'll do, listen, what, we'll put out links, some of these links, in particular, the spje.org, easy to remember, uh, on the on the live blog at the Mass Climate Action Network uh, website, that's massclimateaction.org. You got to look for a newsletter and pull down a menu and you find the, the, the podcast uh, on the pull down. Uh, but there you can go to find this, find the hot links for this show, but you can also just remember spje.org. It'll get you, get you to that important website. 
Um, if you have any questions or comments about this, please send us an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. Let us know what we should be talking about. You're probably listening to us on your smartphone using one of the modern podcast distribution apps. Please ask all of your friends to listen to us on their favorite modern podcast distribution app. I want to thank our good friend Dr. Tucker for his continuing research support. We really appreciate it. I want to close where we always close, by saying that we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, that we accept responsibility for building a durable future, that we believe it's our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out. Because of that, we have to insist that the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulation, investment, and a price on carbon that respects environmental justice communities. So, Alex, thank you so much for being here. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ted. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool. <laughs>